This is Sheer Sports. Welcome to the second edition of the brand new podcast, Sheer Sports. I'm your host, Matt Sheer. For today's episode, in the first part of the show, I'll be discussing the 2020 World Series through five games between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays. In the second part of the show, we'll talk Michigan football after a big win in Minnesota this weekend to kick off the 2020 season. And lastly, we'll talk Lions football to round out the show. Make sure to stay up to date with all the latest information regarding the podcast through our social channels. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by the handle at Sheer underscore sports and on Facebook through liking the page Sheer Sports. We'll step away for a few. When we come back, we'll talk World Series baseball here on the Sheer Sports. It's time for this week in sports history. I'm your host, Matt Shear. The day November 1st is a meaning for a lot of things in sports history including in 1959, future Pro Football Hall of Fame running back Jim Brown rushed for five touchdowns for the Cleveland Browns, 38-31 win over the Baltimore Colts at Memorial Stadium. On November 1st of 1966, the NFL awards a franchise to New Orleans, named the Saints, which alluded to November 1st, All Saints Day in the Catholic faith. On November 1st, 1970, the first NFL regular season New York Giants-New York Jets game occurred, with the Giants winning 22-10 at Shea Stadium. On November 1st, 1994, Chicago Bulls retired basketball superstar Michael Jordan's number 23 jersey in a two-hour ceremony at the United Center. Jordan would come back to play in 1995 and again from 2001 to 2003 with the Washington Wizards. And finally, on November 1st, 2003, John Gagliardi ties Eddie Robinson as college football's career victory leader with his 408th win, guiding Division III St. John's to a 15-12 victory over their rival St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. You want to stay tuned for our next segment later on the show on Sheer Sports. We'll move into Rays Dodgers here in the 2020 World Series. And of course, we're through five games so far in this 2020 series with the Dodgers up three games to two over the Tampa Bay Rays. And it's a series that has lived up to the hype between the old school way of thinking and the Titan with the giant payroll and the Dodgers and the analytics side of things, and the low-budget Tampa Bay Rays. David versus Goliath matchup, and the Dodgers up three games to two. They're now one game away from clinching a World Series championship. But first, we'll go through the series and just kind of look over things, because last time we talked, we were before the World Series. So, that first game, Dodgers win 8-3. to That was... Setting the tone for Los Angeles, Clayton Kershaw, the Dodgers horse out there fighting for his first world championship, gets the job done in game one. Game two, it's a different story. Tampa Bay wins it 6-4. to four. 
And Nick Anderson got the win in relief. And a lot of people question, would Walker Bueller get the start in Game 2? And instead, they went to Tony Gonsolin, the opener. And Blake Snell, something that has come up with the Dodgers, is they've had trouble against left-handers. The left, you can equate it to the Dodgers being Superman and the Rays and a left-hander being the kryptonite. In terms of this, the Rays left-handed pitcher Blake Snell being the kryptonite to the Dodgers, who are in this equation Superman. Blake Snell pitched tremendously, did not allow a hit going into the fifth inning, Four and two-thirds innings, he pinched, and he just allowed two hits. The only thing was he did have four walks, but he struck out nine, and Blake Snell was unhittable for those first four innings of play. The Rays came out with a big showing on Game 2 with Brandon Lau hitting two home runs, maybe breaking through that funk he's had through the entire postseason, and things looked bright for the Rays. Diego Castillo got the save in Game 2, and the series was tied at 1. Then you go to Game 3. The Dodgers end up taking it. Walker Bueller shows why he is the future ace once Kershaw's career is over. He starts to have the decline in his career, which we haven't seen so far, because Clayton Kershaw's Clayton Kershaw, but Walker Bueller looked dominant. And Bueller had himself a tremendous game. The Rays were stifled through the first four innings before cracking through with a solo shot by Randy Arozarena. But other than that, Walker Bueller had it figured out. Charlie Morton wasn't the Charlie Morton we had seen in the previous seven postseason outings that he had won. He picks up the loss in that in game three, but Walker Bueller showed that he is a guy that can neutralize the Rays offense and deservedly so he will get another start in this World Series, pending how far it goes. And then you move to game four, and this was a World Series game that will be talked about for years to come. As the Dodgers get the early lead, jumping out 2-0 after three innings. Ryan Yarbrough was a starter for Tampa, Julio Urias for Los Angeles. And Justin Turner had hit the home run in that first inning for the second consecutive game, hitting a home run there. And he passed Duke Snyder for the most postseason home runs in Dodger history. And he was actually, this is a cool, neat fact, became the first player in MLB history to homer in the first inning of back-to-back World Series games. And Turner's was trying to build up his World Series MVP resume. So then you also look at the Rays were able to tie it, or get a run back in the fourth. The Dodgers jumped back up in game five, made it three to one. The Rays score in the bottom of the fifth. It's three to two. And then the Dodgers get a run back in the sixth, making it four to two. But then Brandon 
Wow, a three-run home run. Again, coming up big. This is third home run of the World Series. Makes it 5-2-4 Tampa Bay. But then the Dodgers counter back in the seventh with two runs. And grab the lead back from Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay tied it in the bottom of the seventh. And this was that back-and-forth feel that you felt back in 2017 in that high-scoring affair between Houston Astros and the Los Angeles Dodgers at Minute Maid Park. That's what it felt like in this game for the 2020 World Series. But what made it even more interesting, the Dodgers up 7-6 to six going to the bottom of the ninth inning. And so in the ninth inning, you had magic. An intentional walk brings up Brett Phillips, a guy who really hasn't had much experience at the plate. His second plate appearance in the postseason, or this postseason, and Brett Phillips he is a local guy. He grew up in Seminole, Florida, in Pinellas County, the same county on the other side of the bay of the main city of Tampa where Tropicana Field sits, the home stadium for the Tampa Bay Rays, a guy who grew up in Tampa Bay. And for Brett Phillips to come up with that big of a hit against Kenley Jansen to right center, but then Chris Taylor bobbles it in right, and Randy Arozarena slipping and falling in between third and home. Just the pandemonium, the craziness of that play. And then the relay throw going to make the tag at home plate instead of catching that baseball. You lose the ball at home, and a Rosarena then is able to gather himself and dive towards home plate and pound home plate a couple of times with his hand to solidify a raised victory. It was just pure poetry in baseball, and it was something that brought so much excitement to not just the fans in Tampa Bay, but for baseball in general. And this win for Tampa Bay made it a series. The Dodgers out hit the Rays 15-10. The Rays win the game 8-7. And a costly errors at the end of that game. And it was the first World Series game to end on an error since Game 6 of the 1986 World Series where Bill Buckner had the ball go in between his legs on a Mookie Wilson ground ball and Ray Knight came around third to score to give the Mets a Game 6 victory. So after Game 4, Series is tied at two games apiece. The Rays are now the closest they've been to a World Championship as their only other appearance in the World Series in 2008, they were only able to win one game against Philadelphia. So now Game 5, series is tied at 2-2. You have the Game 1 starters. Clayton Kershaw, the Dodgers' horse, is back on the mound. And Tyler Glass now, Game 1 starter, who was wild in his first game, suffers giving up two runs in that first inning, and didn't look back after that. It is to 3-2 Dodgers at the end of three, and then just one more run tacked on in the fifth inning. 
but the Rays just were not able to get anything going against Clayton Kershaw. And that brings us through Game 5. It's three games to two. Dodgers lead the Rays. Going into Game 6, the Dodgers looking for the fourth win in the series to solidify their first world championship since 1988, 32 years ago. And Tampa Bay, in their 23rd season of play, is two wins away from winning their first world championship in franchise history. And so, the starters and what we believe for Game 6, of course, it'll be Blake Snell, the kryptonite to the Dodgers' Superman, a left-hander, which the Dodgers have had so much trouble against, facing off against the opener for the Dodgers, Tony Gonsolin, from Game 2. So if this goes according to plan for the Rays, if they're able to neutralize that Dodgers offense, we could be very possibly looking at a Game 7 on Wednesday, October 28th. It should make for an exciting Game 6 in which Tampa needs to come away with a victory to keep this series alive and push the series to the full seven games. Now, before this series, I predicted that the Rays were going to win in six games. I'm going to change that prediction as obviously it can't be done. The Rays can only win in game seven, and I think that the Rays can win this series in seven games because... You have Blake Snell going out in Game 6. He neutralized the Dodgers. And if the Rays win that Game 6, my thinking is that Walker Bueller was as dominant as you could be in his Game 3 victory. And I don't see him having that same success in a Game 7. Yes, the adrenaline rush is there. But I believe the Rays, if winning game six, have the momentum. And the Dodgers have the pressure of trying to win a winner-take-all game. Otherwise, they're faced with three pennants and no World Series championships in the last four years. Which is a disappointment by Dodger standards. A World Series or bust is pretty much what you're looking at for Los Angeles. Tampa Bay is looking for the world championship. That's the mentality is world championship or bust, but Tampa Bay has got to be excited that they're in the series, and they got nothing to lose. They got a chance to win their first championship in World Series history, and they're doing it at a very, very cheap rate with a low payroll, very efficient with their funds compared to the big city in Los Angeles with the Dodgers. So, Rays in seven, that's my final statement and what we'll see this week. Of course, next week, we'll talk about game six and a possible game seven and should make for an exciting series. So, that's where we're at with the 2020 World Series. And that will take care of our 2020 World Series segment. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk... Michigan football, their big win against Minnesota, and the Paul Bunyan Trophy battle this Saturday at the Big House between Michigan and Michigan State. It's time for This Week in Sports History. I'm your host, Matt Shear. 
November 2nd is notable for a lot of things in sports history. On November 2nd, 1969, 41-year-old Detroit Red Wing Gordie Howe picked up his 19th and final NHL hat trick as the Red Wings beat the Pittsburgh Penguins 4-3. At the age of 41, Howe became the oldest player to score an NHL hat trick in league history. On November 2nd, 1974, the Atlanta Braves traded the then MLB home run king Hank Guerin to the Milwaukee Brewers for outfielder Dave May. Aaron returned to the city where he used to play when the Braves were in Milwaukee for the final two seasons of his career. On November 2nd, 1978, Wayne Gretzky was sold to the Edmonton Oilers after just eight games with the Indianapolis Racers of the WHA, where he scored six points. Gretzky went on to score 104 points in 72 games between both teams combined and is named the WHA Rookie of the Year. On November 2nd, 1996, the Miami Heat's head coach Pat Riley became the eighth head coach in NBA history to win 800 games in a 97-95 win at the Indiana Pacers. The milestone was accomplished two weeks shy of his 15th coaching anniversary, which made him faster than any coach in NBA history to win 800 games. And finally, on November 2nd, 2013, Masahiro Tanaka's record streak of 30 consecutive starts without a loss ends when the Rakuten Golden Eagles ace is beaten 4-2 by the Yomiri Giants in Game 6 of the Japan Baseball Series. Tune in to Sheer Sports every week for more of This Week in Sports History, only on Sheer Sports. So now it's time for us to talk Michigan football. The Michigan Wolverines winning their first game 49-24 at TCF Bank Stadium in Minnesota against the Golden Gophers and P.J. Fleck. And for Michigan fans, you have to be excited by the fact that, one, you were able to beat a Minnesota-led team by head coach P.J. Fleck, and Joe Milton looked the part at the quarterback position, 15-22 passing, 225 yards and a touchdown, and Milton stepping in for this first real game that he's had experience for really looked the part there at that quarterback position, and something that Michigan has been looking for since the first year with Jake Rudock in the Harbaugh tenure when fifth-year senior Jake Rudock had transferred in and provided a great season from the quarterback position that has been something that has been absent for Michigan football since Rudock. And now you have Milton coming in, had a nice first game. I know it's only one game, but you have to like the signs so far for Michigan football. And the only thing I would really be worried about if you're Michigan is the defense. You give up 326 total yards to Minnesota. Yes, Minnesota was in the top is in the top 25, but still the defense was a little bit worrisome especially when you start looking down the road at the schedule for Michigan when they do have to play a Penn State or an Ohio State, one of those games that are so crucial to Michigan fans later on in the schedule but Michigan they did look really good against Minnesota Joe Milton having a passing touchdown 
but also when you do look at the box score, it wasn't just the passing that was done well by Joe Milton. It was the rushing. And Milton had eight carries for 52 yards and a touchdown as well. But Michigan had 256 yards on the ground, which was very good to see. Yes, they did give up 129 on the ground and 197 through the air. But Michigan offense looked the part. And when I say look the part, looked as if they were a team that has a chance to contend here in the 2020 college football season. The defense was the big question marks. And personally, I think we got to look at, is Michigan going to have a defense that continues to improve and is able to hold up the entire way throughout this 2020 season? Minnesota provided, yes, a tough challenge, but they're not a team that you would compare for a championship contender like an Ohio State or a Penn State. And Michigan right now, you want to judge yourselves against the top tier and what they have, top tier teams, in terms of past success in the Big Ten. And those are two teams in your division that you really want to focus on. Are we going to match up well against them? Yes, it's down the road this season, but it's a good gauge of where we're at. Michigan offense, again, was stellar. The defense are where the question marks are. And I'm going to look for what Michigan can do because against Michigan State because Michigan football, if they are able to, first of all, handle their rival, which they should because of a disappointing loss for Michigan State fans against Rutgers, but Mel Tucker came in to Michigan State, and he's going to have to work with what he's got after D'Antonio left after over a decade at Michigan State and trying to rebuild the program there and to the past success that they had when they made the college football playoff under the success when they had quarterback Connor Cook. So Michigan football, they should win this Saturday against Michigan State. They are projected to have a big win against Michigan State. They are projected as favorites in that matchup, but you never know because Michigan State has played well against Michigan, and the rivalry aspect is those intangibles that cannot be quantified. But overall, I think Michigan, they had a great game. The defense is the only question marks in what we have to look for when we move forward. Of course, this could be just a blip of Joe Milton having a great game, but I like what we've seen so far. He looks apart physicality, and his play on the field looked very well as in addition to that. So I'm excited to see what Week 2 brings in terms of Week 2 for Michigan football as they take on their crosstown rivals for the Paul Bunyan Trophy in 2020. That's going to do it for our Michigan football talk segment here on Sheer Sports. It's time to drink the Kool-Aid in Detroit. The Lions are 3-3 three and three in the 2020 season. After starting off with a not-so-good start in their season, they have come back and made this a 500 campaign so far through six games at 3-3 three and three with a win over 
the Atlanta Falcons. Do we believe that this is a turnaround under head coach Matt Patricia? That remains to be seen, but Matthew Stafford leading the Lions to a victory against the Falcons last this past weekend, and wow. Todd Gurley had a chance to just kneel it, but the Lions ended up winning because the Falcons pulled a Lions move towards the end of the game. Instead of going down, Todd Gurley scores and allows Matthew Stafford to take his team down the field and score a touchdown, and Matt Prater make the extra point to give the Lions a 23-22 win. And... There are those Lions fans out there who say, why did they have to win those games? You hate to root against your own team, but the Lions are making a case for Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn to stay, and some people just aren't too happy with that result of the winning. And it will really come to, we'll, we'll come to see what this Lions team is all about because they're taking on a possible future, I believe, in my opinion, future Hall of Famer, Philip Rivers, coming into town at Ford Field this Sunday against the Lions. And if the Lions can beat Phil Rivers and company and get over the 500 mark and be 4-3 and three through seven games, they take on a Vikings team after that, and then the Washington football team comes in the week after, maybe some things start to get going for the Lions. And... I know some of you listening saying, Matt, don't go down that road, but it has to be addressed. But first, we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. The Lions got to take care of business against Indianapolis, who comes into Ford Field this Sunday. And if they are able to, then the discussion can start. But I'm not ready at that point yet. This is a Detroit Lions team that has gotten wins against Dismal teams, the Falcons, have played terribly, and it took a last-minute drive for the Lions to have to come back and defeat them, a team that stood around and let the Cowboys recover an onside kick. I mean, come on. This, this Lions team, they've got to put up a better showing and I get, don't critique wins and losses. I, I get the criticisms there, but at the same time, because it's a win, but at the same time, the Lions need to have better showings against the Falcons for me to really be a believer in the city of Detroit's football team. And for the Lions to grab my attention and say, we're on our way to a contending football team. But right now, I just don't see it. You have to beat the Colts. And after that, you got to go into Minnesota and take care of business. And even a win against Washington football team. A win against those, against the next three of those. And you've got four wins, five wins, and six wins. You're looking at a six and three team. That catches my attention much better. Yes, the Lions have failed to win in the division this year. That's another thing that's worrisome, and that can be taken care of with a win against Minnesota at U.S. Bank Stadium on November 8th, that 1 o'clock kickoff. But I'm not ready to buy in yet. Beat the Colts, 
and then you start to pique my interest. It's a home game. You should be able to beat the Colts if you were any other football team. But you're the Detroit Lions. You need to get this win, yet the Lions have shown that they have had trouble against teams like that. The last two weeks, the Lions beat the Jaguars, a team that is not a contender. They barely beat the Falcons, a team that is not a contender. The previous week, they lose against the Saints. Yes, they had a good matchup, but you lost and you weren't able to pull it out at home against the Saints. But you should not. Again, I'm going to go back to that Falcons win. The Lions beat the Falcons, but it should not take a last-minute drive. Yes, it's wins and losses. It, it all looks the same as a, as a blowout. But the Lions, for me to be a believer in the abilities of this team, need to go out and beat the Indianapolis Colts. Other than that, for the Lions, I'm still not a Matt Patricia fan. I don't believe that he can get it done. And for Bob Quinn, my time is running out on if you are going to be able to deliver the answer to this long, historic franchise filled with a long history of losing and negative connotations. With that, we have reached the end of the second episode of Sheer Sports. I would like to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this brand new podcast about sports. Make sure to follow at Sheer underscore sports on Twitter and Instagram and like us on Facebook for all information and content regarding Sheer Sports. Have a great day, and I'll see you next week on Sheer Sports.